Section 37 of Library of the World's Best Mystery and Detective Stories, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phil Chenevere. Library of the World's Best Mystery and Detective Stories, Volume 6, by Julian Hawthorne, Editor. Section 37 Fraudulent Spiritualism Unveiled. Part One by David P. Abbott. The Methods of a Doctor of the Occult. Footnote. As to whether communication with the departed is possible, no discussion is here attempted. The episodes following, from experiences well authenticated, merely illustrate what sleight-of-hand experts have long known, that most medium, astrologers, mind-readers, and the like, can be proven to be frauds. Their dupes are puzzled, and sometimes won over in the name of spiritualism, either by the tricks familiar to all conjurers, or else by the psychology of deception. Some of the cleverness displayed is marvelous, as the following pages show. End of footnote. Not so very long ago I met a friend, a man of wealth, who was a firm believer in spiritualism, and who frequently conversed with his dead wife and daughter. I asked him if he would inform me whether or not there were any good mediums in the city, as I should like to consult one. He replied that at present there were none in Omaha of any well-developed psychic powers, that he was entirely satisfied on the subject and did not require any demonstrations to convince himself of the truths of spiritual science. He informed me that the question was settled beyond all dispute but that if I were skeptical, there was said to be a medium in Council Bluffs who possessed most wonderful powers. I accordingly made other inquiries from those who are in a position to know, and I learned that this medium, a celebrated doctor of the occult, astrologer, palmist, and spirit medium, was at that time giving private sittings in Council Bluffs to earnest inquirers only for the small sum of two dollars. I was informed that his performances were of the most wonderful nature, that there was no possibility of trickery of any kind, that he told you whatever you desired to know without your even asking him, that, in addition to this, he had powers over the elements of nature, and in fact I was led to believe that he was a true sorcerer of the olden days. I determined at once to call on this renowned personage, and try to secure a little information from the unseen world. Accordingly, one Sunday afternoon, I took the car that crossed the river, and in due time arrived at the apartments of this wonderful doctor. I was met at the door by an attendant, who accepted the fee and directed me to enter the rooms of this mysterious person quietly, and if I found him employed, by no means to disturb him, but merely to await his pleasure, that he was frequently conversing with unseen beings, or deep in some astrological computation, and at such times it was not safe to disturb him. With a beating heart I entered the room where he was to be found. This room was a large one. I did not see him at first. What attracted my attention was a large map or painting on a piece of canvas which hung on a wall space in the room. This painting had a representation of the sun in its center. This could be discovered by the rays which radiated from it in all directions. Around this sun were many stars and an occasional planet, among which Saturn and its rings were very prominently depicted. There were numerous pictures of animals and men, and of queer monsters scattered among the stars. 
Beneath this picture stood a large golden oak table, at which sat this delver into the occult, deeply engrossed in a study of this painting, while with a little brush he figured and calculated, in a queer sort of Chinese characters, which he drew on a sheet of paper. He also seemed to be making a strange drawing on the same paper. He was far too deeply engaged to notice my entrance, and continued at his labors for some time, while I stood quietly and watched him. Sitting on one end of this rather large table was a glass globe or vessel, supported by three nickeled rods, something like a tripod. Coming from the wall was a rather large nickeled tube or pipe, which curved over above the glass vessel and continually allowed drops of water to fall into the globe. From the side of this glass vessel there led a small nickeled pipe, which evidently carried away the waste water. Occasionally a little blue flame would appear on the surface of this water, play about, and disappear. When this happened the body of the medium was always convulsed slightly. After a time he seemed to finish his calculation, and this seer condescended to leave the realms of the stars wherein dwelt the spirits that ruled the universe and the destinies of men, and to descend to earth, and for a time direct his gaze toward this humble mortal. He turned around and observed me for the first time. He was a large, portly, fine-looking gentleman of middle age, with very long black hair which gave him a strange appearance. He wore a pair of glasses low down on his nose, and from over these he condescended to direct his gaze at, and to study me for a moment, as a naturalist might study some specimen that happened temporarily to attract his notice. He soon informed me that the stars had told him something of my coming, and of the question that was worrying me, and he asked me if I desired to consult the stars as to my destiny, to have him decipher it from the lines of my palm or whether I should prefer to converse with the dead. The last was my choice. Not far from a window at one side of the room there was a small table on which were a few articles. He directed me to be seated at this table and handed me a slip of paper of a size of probably four or five inches. He directed me to write the question I desired answered on this paper, and went through to fold the paper in halves three times with the writing inside. I did so while he walked to his bowl of water, apparently paying no attention to me, and then returned. When he had returned to a position opposite me at the table, he reached to take my writing out of my hand, seeing which I quickly bent down one corner of the paper and gave it to him. He directed one sharp glance at me as I did this, at the same time picking up an envelope from the table with his other hand. He held this envelope open, flap side toward me, and slowly inserted my paper into it. As he did this, looking sharply at me, he remarked, I am no sleight-of-hand performer. You see, your question is actually in the envelope. This was the case, for it was close to me, and I could plainly see the top of it against the back of the envelope, the lower portions being inserted, and I could see the little corner folded down as I had bent it and I was certain he had not exchanged it. In fact, he took occasion to use his hands in such manner that I could see there was nothing concealed about them, that he palmed nothing, that he made no exchange. I was entirely satisfied that all was fair, and that no exchange had been made. Next he sealed the envelope, and holding it toward the window, called my attention to the fact that 
as the envelope was partly transparent i could see my paper within it and that it was actually there this was really the case he now took a match and lighting it applied the flame to this identical envelope without its leaving my sight and proceeded to burn the last vestige of it and the paper within it allowing the ashes to drop into a small vessel on the table there was no doubt that he did not exchange envelopes and that he burned it before my very eyes he now took the ashes and emptied them into the bowl of water on the side table a little blue flame appeared on the surface of the water after that for a moment and then disappeared he now brought from a drawer a number of slates about eight or ten small slates with padded edges they were the smallest size of slates i should judge and with them he brought another slate a trifle larger probably two inches both longer and wider he requested me to examine thoroughly and to clean them all to my own satisfaction and to stack the small ones on the table one on top of the other and when all were thus placed to place the large slate on top of the stack while i was doing this he called to his attendant for a drink of water and incidentally stepped into the hall to receive it so that his menial would not profane the sanctuary with his presence Returning to the table, he took a seat opposite me and placed one of my hands and one of his on top of the slates. In due time he took up the slates and we found nothing. He replaced them and waited for a few moments. Then, seeming dissatisfied with conditions, he took up the top slate in his left hand and with his right hand began writing a message for me. He did this like mediums do automatic writing with eyes half closed and while writing his person was convulsed a few times he then opened his eyes and read aloud what he had written asking me if it answered my question i replied that it did not as it was entirely foreign to the subject then seeming dissatisfied he moistened his fingers erased the writing and replaced the top slate on the stack of slates he now placed his hands on this slate again and after a time examined it but it was still free from writing he lifted up some of the other slates, but as there was no writing, he scattered the slates around on the table and asked me to spread a large cloth over them, which he handed to me. This I did, and under his direction placed my arms and hands over this. He walked to the bowl of water on the side table and gazed into it. I watched him, and I saw a rather large flame appear on the surface of the water, dance about, and disappear. He immediately informed me that he was certain that I now had a message. He remained at a distance while I examined the slates one by one. Finally, on one of them I found a message neatly written and covering the entire slate. It read, Mrs. Piper is a genuine medium. She possesses powers of a very unusual nature. Her tests, given Hyslop and others, are genuine. Do not be a skeptic. You are making a mistake, dear friend. It is all plain to me now, and spirit is all there is. Will. Now the question I had written was addressed to a very dear friend who is now dead, and read as follows. Will J. In regard to the medium, Mrs. Piper, of whom we conversed on your last visit, I would ask if she be genuine, and if the tests she gave Professor Hyslop and others were genuine. Give me a test. This was all nicely done, and I am sure would have greatly impressed nearly everyone. Being a performer myself, I could, of course, follow the performance in minute detail, and I am thus enabled to give to the readers of this paper a detailed account of the method used by the doctor. I will state that since that time 
I have very successfully operated this same test, minus the bowl of water and flame of fire, and that I can assure all that it is very practicable and that it is very deceptive. How the tricks succeeded. When the medium picked up the envelope in which to place my paper, there was within it a duplicate piece of paper, folded the same and of the same size, one inch and a quarter by two inches, as the one I had folded. He kept the face of this envelope opposite to me so I could not see that side of it. On the face of it was a horizontal slit cut with a knife. This slit was about two inches long and was situated about halfway down the face of the envelope. The duplicate folded paper was placed vertically in the envelope at its center so that its center was located against the slit. This piece of paper was held in position by a touch of paste at a point opposite the slit which caused it to adhere to the inside of the back of the envelope. When he picked up this prepared envelope with his left hand, he did so with the slit side or face in his palm next to the fingers of his left hand. This envelope lay slit side down before he picked it up so that I did not see the face of the envelope at all, and he kept that side of the envelope from me during the entire trick. The paper within the envelope had been placed far enough down so that its top part was not exposed to my view. The envelope thus appeared perfectly natural, as an ordinary one with nothing in it. He thus held the envelope in his left hand, flap open wide, with the back side of the envelope later to be sealed, facing me. Now he really inserted my paper in this envelope with his right hand, as he took it from me, but in fact he pushed it down just behind the hidden slip of paper within the envelope. I mean that he inserted it between the concealed slip and the face or slit side of the envelope, and as he did this he caused the lower end of my slip of paper to pass through the slit in the center of the front of the envelope. The lower portion of my slip was thus out of the envelope on its rear side, between the front of the envelope and the fingers of his left hand, although I could see nothing of this. He pushed it down so that the top still remained in view with the bent corner exposed, and then sealed the flap over it. Holding the envelope toward the window, he called to my notice the fact that my paper was within, and that I could see it plainly. I could see the shadow of the two papers, which appeared as one, and thus his statement seemed correct. Of course, he did not show me the rear side or face of the envelope, with my paper protruding, which was immediately behind the duplicate, so that the shadow of it was also the shadow of the duplicate. This shadow also hid from my view the shadow of the slit. The envelope was sealed fairly. Now with his right hand he moved a small vessel of the table towards himself. Then taking the envelope in his right hand slit side downward, he held it close to this vessel. At the same time, with his left hand, he took a match from his pocket and proceeded to burn the envelope. This move concealed the trick, and it was very deceiving and cleverly done. As he took the envelope from his left hand with his right hand, he, with his left fingers touching the protruding portion of my slip, caused it to remain in his left hand and to be drawn entirely out of the slit. His eyes followed the envelope as his right hand took it, which naturally caused my eyes to follow it, as his attention seemed centered on the envelope, and it appeared to occupy the stage of action. This move was executed in a moment not requiring any time worth mentioning, although it takes so long to describe it on paper intelligibly. Now, while his eyes, and of course mine, 
followed the envelope without pause his left hand went into his left pocket in a natural manner to get the match he of course left my slip in his pocket with his surplus matches and when he retired for the drink of water he read my question as to the slate trick all was fair until he picked up the top slate wrote an automatic message apparently read it aloud to me and then upon my informing him that the message did not answer my question he seemed dissatisfied apparently erased the message and replaced the large slate on top of the stack of slates what he really did was to pick up the large top slate bottom side toward himself and at the same time to carry with it a small slate pressed tightly against its underside he held the large slate with its underside tilted from me so i could not see this small slate there being so many small slates in the stack the temporary absence of one from the stack attracted no notice he kept this small slate next to him out of my view and really wrote the message on the small slate which was next to him and which was concealed from my view by the larger slate he did not read aloud what he had actually written but merely pretended to do so repeating something entirely foreign to the subject instead what he had written really answered my question fully when he appeared to erase the message his movements were but a pretense and he did not erase it at all when he replaced the large slate on the stack of slates he of course replaced the small one which was concealed under it message side down it must be remembered that the operator at the beginning of the slate trick first took up and examined the large slate a time or so for a message and finding none seemed disappointed and finally wrote the automatic message then on being informed that it did not apply to the case he seemed dissatisfied and appeared to erase it after the message was written and the slates replaced he examined the top slate a time or so and even lifted up a few small slates looking for writing but he did not turn them over then seeing nothing he scattered the slates around on the table leaving their same sides downward and handing me the cover he requested me to cover them and place my hands on them the trick was now practically done as the slates had been examined so many times and nothing found on them even after the automatic writing the majority of persons would testify that there was positively nothing on the slates when the medium left the table the majority of persons would never remember that he at one time wrote on the large slate and erased it the message being on a small slate and these being spread around few would have known that this message really appeared on the particular small slate that was originally next the top of the stack most people would have certified that they cleaned all the slates themselves that the medium never touched any of the small ones and that he only laid his hands on top of the stack a few times some would even forget that the medium handled their writing at all before burning it i am sure that the nickeled tube that carried the dripping water into the space over the glass bowl had a second tube within it through which his assistant from the adjoining room either blew or sent by some mechanism the chemicals probably potassium that would take fire and burn on striking the water when i performed the slate trick described above after writing the automatic message apparently erasing it and replacing the slates i do not scatter the slates around on the table as this medium did instead i proceed as i will now describe we place our palms on the stack and after a time examine the large slate for a message but find none i may incidentally remark that this last examination 
unconsciously verifies in the sitter's mind the fact that I actually erased what I wrote automatically. I now look on some of the smaller slates for a message, but find none. When I do this, I do not turn these slates over and look at their undersides, but merely take off the top slate to see if there be a message on the upper surface of the one under it. I merely remark, well, there is nothing on that slate, indicating the second one from the top, and at the same time I drop the top slate, now in my hand, on the table beside the stack. I immediately take off the second slate and repeat this same performance, dropping it on top of the first one. I keep on with this performance until I have removed four or five of the slates, and have them stacked in a second stack beside the first one. Then, seeming to grow discouraged, I remark, I guess there is no message, and I replace the second stack on the first stack. This places the message slate four or five slates down in the stack, as the bottom slate of the second stack, being the top slate of the original stack, is now the message slate. I next up-edge the small slates and place a rubber band around them, placing them in the sitter's lap. I, of course, place what was the top of the stack downward when I do so. As the stack is on the side edges of the slates when I first up-edge them, I next bring them over the end edges while I put the band in place. It is now easy to place a stack of slates upon the sitter's lap with the top slate down and to attract no notice to this fact. This is because the position has been changed a time or so in placing the band on, and I then take the stack in my hands by the edges of the slates and simply place what was the top side of the stack in the beginning at the bottom. In due time, I tell the subject to make an examination for a message, and, of course, four or five slates down, he finds a message on the upper surface of one of the slates. This seems very miraculous, as the slates have been so repeatedly examined and nothing found. Finding the message on the upper surface of a middle slate, where, but a moment before, there was nothing, seems to be truly a marvel. The subject, having cleaned and stacked these slates himself, and having seen them examined so many times, naturally feels impressed that the message comes by some superhuman power. End of section 37. Recording by Phil Chenevere, Baton Rouge, Louisiana.